0: Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Laid to rest. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is laid to rest in Rome. We take a look at the life and legacy of the German born Pope with EWTN's Rome bureau chief Andreas Tonhauser and Father Thomas Petrie of the Dominican house of studies in Washington DC joins us in studio to discuss Pope Benedict's continued legacy erroneous abortion study. A new study suggests more women are dying in pro-life states due to abortion limits. Scientists at the Charlotte Lozier Institute rebuke those claims and say the numbers are not reliable. Dr. Ingrid Scott Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, breaks down the diluted study. Giving Back for Babies, a coffee shop based in the Washington, D.C. area stands up for life with every cup. The owner and founder of 7 Weeks Coffee shares how his company donates to pro-life pregnancy centers all across the nation. With great sorrow, we continue to mourn the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who died on New Year's Eve at the age of 95. In the wake of his death, the Pope Emeritus is remembered not only by Catholics, but also by Christians of all different denominations. His deep theological writings did much to illuminate for Catholics the true nature of our Lord Jesus Christ and the role of the Catholic Church in the world. Pope Benedict's funeral took place on Thursday, January 5th at the Vatican. We spoke with EWTN's Andreas Tonhauser that day. Joining me now from Vatican City is Andreas Tannhauser, EWTN's Vatican Bureau Chief. Andreas, thank you for taking a moment to join us during this solemn week, this solemn day. Could you tell us, what has it been like in Vatican Square these past couple of days?
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been, you know, it's been a sad occasion actually that brought us all together here, the the thousands of pilgrims coming here to Rome and saying saying their farewells to Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth. At the same time, it's also been a very hopeful, a very inspiring time, also for myself to see. All those many peoples whose lives were very much influenced, as they told me in many interviews that we led here in St. Peter's Square, they they said that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI was very, very important to them. That's why they wanted to pay their reverences. That's why they also wanted to say farewell to this great pope, to this great teacher also, but also to this great human person.
0: And speaking of the crowds, can, can you tell us how many people have traveled to the city to pay their respects at this point?
1: Well, the statistics that we've heard from, from the Holy See Press Office is like more than 200,000 people have really come to, to the... To, to the. Pope lying in state inside St. Peter's Basilica, paid their reverences, say their farewell, say their goodbye, say a quick prayer. It was a very solemn, solemn mood, atmosphere inside the Basilica also. I, I had the opportunity to go in there several times, and I, I really cherished those moments as well, saying my own goodbyes to Pope Emeritus Benedict 16th, but then also seeing all those people who found s- corners inside the Basilica where they knelt down, prayed the rosary, and, um, and there were many tears also wept for a great pope.
0: So beautiful. What a testament to his legacy. And and will you share with us just a few details of the ceremony that took place this morning?
1: Sure. So the funeral, um, it was a simple funeral after three days of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI lying in state in, in, in the basilica. I say simple because those are also the words that Matteo Bruni, the spokesperson of the Holy See Press Office, used for describing this funeral. There were only two state delegations, Germany, of course, where, where Pope Emeritus is from, and then Italy, who sent their official delegations. At the same time, we know that there was also the Portuguese president, many others, heads of states who came here to, to, to say goodbye to Pope Emeritus Benedict 16th, and it was a, it was a beautiful Mass, a solemn Mass, uh, with many people from all over the world participating in it. And with Pope Francis, of course, presiding over the Mass, also giving the homily, saying farewell to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and then bringing the, the coffin uh, with, the, with the Pope Emeritus inside back into the basilica down uh, where where he's now laying in his in his tomb there.
0: Thank you for sharing those details. And, And one final question, Andreas. As our Vatican bureau chief, you have followed Pope Benedict's life very closely, surely closer than most of us. When you think of his legacy, what will you remember the most about our Holy Father in the years to come?
1: I think that he was a great, uh, a great theologian, somebody whose legacy on the on the really theological thoughts and ideas that he had uh, will, will yet be discovered in the, in, in the years to come. He was very very influential also with his writings in my personal life. I benefited greatly from his insights, especially how he how he focused his ideas his thoughts, and thoughts on Jesus Christ and making him approachable really uh, to me as well and, and, and to to many of my friends I I also always appreciated how clearly he was on topics like marriage, on topics like the right to life. He was a pope that really defended the human person and wrote a lot about it, how our faith in God really makes us human and makes us also human towards the next, uh, towards our neighbors and other human beings. So Mm. this is, I think, part of his legacy.
0: Well, thank you for sharing all of that with us, Andreas, and for your always excellent reporting from the Vatican. Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief. God bless you. To continue this discussion, we're joined now by Father Thomas Petrie, president of the Dominican House of Studies. Father, thanks for joining me today. Let's talk about Pope Benedict's legacy. You know, he was beloved by more than just Catholics. Many people on, you know, across the spectrum, many Christian denominations understood um, that he was really a visionary. And he had a lot of predictions about how modern technology and the increasingly secular culture would impact and change the world. Talk to me about that.
2: Well, you know, he understood, of course, the first and primary reason for Christian existence is to come to know and love Jesus Christ, right? And when he started to see how the modern world was moving towards a more technological, or we might use the word even technocratic, that technology is the way to make our lives better and improve our lives, he understood that all of that will eventually serve first to distract from the true purpose of life, which is knowing and loving Jesus Christ, but also could in fact um, denigrate the human person. And we see where we are today, uh, nine years after his resignation, you know, with his death, but we see that the world is at a place where science and technology, people deny the intrinsic dignity of the human person. They deny the intrinsic orientation of the human body right. because technology can be used to manipulate the human body and uh, and, and the person. Mm,
0: it's very troubling. And, you know, Pope Benedict also spoke with Claire in defiance of abortion. In one instance, he said, quote, Everyone must become aware of the intrinsic evil of the crime of abortion. In attacking human life in its very first stages, it is also an aggression against society itself. Can you elaborate for us what he meant there?
2: Well, like every pope before him and certainly Pope Francis after him has understood that the the human person and the family especially is the cell of human society. And once you begin to turn on the infant, and for Pope Pope, uh, Benedict, there was no ontological difference between an infant and an unborn child. They are the same person. Um, And so once you begin to turn against the infant and the child of the family, it, it fundamentally fundamentally yields to a breakdown of the family and the importance of the family for society.
0: Right, right. And perhaps Pope Benedict's most famous work was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is a study of the person of Jesus Christ that revealed a lot about who he is and how Christ saved the world. Could you talk a little bit about Jesus of Nazareth and the context in which Pope Benedict wrote this?
2: Well, this was a project for most of his life, which was the right interpretation of scripture. You know, Over the last 150 years, what came to the fore in the interpretation of Scripture scripture from many scholars, even Catholic scholars, was what... Known as the historical-critical method, in which you isolate various books or passages of the Bible and you try to figure out, well, what did the human author initially mean, and what was going on in the cultures. And he, found, he felt that while there can be value to that, it ends up relativizing revelation, you know, making experts the, the, the determining factor of what God meant with uh, with revelation. Mm-hmm. So, with his his point of biblical interpretation was to yes, use these historical-critical methods. Methods, but always with an eye to interpreting scripture with other scripture with the fathers of the church and so in his Jesus of Nazareth trilogy He brings that understanding of scripture to bear to show yes The modern historical critical methods of now analyzing text and their origins can be helpful mm-hmm. But are only beneficial if they're brought into dialogue and relationship with how the church is always taught and understood these same scriptural texts. So he wasn't afraid of of modern interpretations, but he also wanted modern interpretations to be respectful of the true magisterial teaching about who Jesus is, what the church is, and what scripture is. Mm,
0: Very interesting. Thank you so much for explaining that, what a giant Pope Benedict was, and thanks for joining us, Father Thomas Petrie.
2: Thank you, Prudence.
0: A new study claims that more pregnant women are dying in states with strong pro-life laws. But the expert scientists at Charlotte Lozier Institute have combed through the study and report another story. The study, which has been analyzed by media outlets such as the Daily Mail and NBC News, was released by a group called the Commonwealth Fund. The group claims to conduct independent health care research. But a spokesperson from CLI told me that the study's conclusions are, quote, highly suspect. CLI experts have been combing through the study to bring you the truth about these maternal mortality claims. Leading CLI's research on this topic is Dr. Ingrid Skopp, their senior fellow and director of medical affairs. She joins me now. Dr. Skopp, thanks for joining me. I think an important question to ask here at the start is, what are the methods by which the Commonwealth Fund conducted this
3: research and are they reliable? Thanks, Prudence. Um, so, the Commonwealth Fund um, looked at the 26 states that have passed um, what they consider to be restrictive abortion laws. And they compared them to the 24 states in the District of Columbia that um, have more permissive laws. And then they looked at um, what the CDC documents about maternal mortality in those states and concluded that um, the states that had more restrictive laws have higher maternal mortality. Therefore, Um, restrictive abortion laws must lead to higher maternal mortality, and there's a number of problems with this um, uh, discussion. Uh, For one thing, um, the CDC's um, data about maternal mortality is well known to be incomplete, Um, and I think people on both sides of the aisle acknowledge this. Um, When when we look at um, international records linkage studies, which are much higher quality, We discovered that in the year following an abortion, a woman is much more likely to die than if she had delivered a baby. Um, Additionally, mental health deaths are much higher, um, six times more suicides if a woman has an abortion than if she um, uh, delivers a child. Mm. Um, Additionally, it takes years to analyze the CDC's data. So the Commonwealth Fund was looking at data from 2017 to 2019 on maternal mortality and comparing it. To states that just recently passed laws in 2021 and 2022, so obviously you can't make that type of a temporal comparison. Right, right, um, that's very confusing. It's interesting to see that there there are some things that these um, restrictive states have in common. They have lower net income, they have higher levels of poverty, and they have higher they have more counties that are uh, what are called maternal care deserts, which means that women have trouble getting prenatal care. Um, And so we can look at a lot of factors and determine, well, this might be the reason for the maternal mortality problem, and it has nothing to do with abortion. Um, but it just has more to do with the demographics and the policies of the states and the way the um, state health care systems run.
0: Right. And we have to be frank about this. You're laying it out right now. The fact is that it's not too much of a surprise that pregnant women in these states could be dying for, for various reasons. One of them, because they feel that they're in dire circumstances when they become pregnant and they're turning to illegal and extremely unsafe methods of abortion. But but to put this all in perspective, how many women's lives are being saved by these laws? Is it true that women simply must resort to these barbaric, illegal ways of killing their children? Is, is there another option?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the states that have put abortion restrictions in place are going to see a demographic dividend. They already have more births than the states that are restrictive. And uh, we all know that the most likely thing for a woman who encounters barriers to an abortion is that she continues her pregnancy, grows to love her child, and we're already seeing data that the states, particularly Texas, who put their restriction in, um, in 2021, we're already seeing more births. And that's a good thing. Children are a good thing. Well, thank you so much for
0: clearing up everything in that study and, and for your knowledge on all of this. Dr. Ingrid Scott of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thank you. Developing research from the Heritage Foundation shows the state of California is not only one of the biggest abortion hubs in the country, but it's also become a hub for what is known as commercial surrogacy. In short, foreigners, mainly Chinese foreigners, are renting American women and using their wombs to ensure their children are born on American soil. For a price, the Chinese are separating the procreative act from marriage, ensuring for themselves and their families the perks of being an American citizen without ever leaving China. Perks like access to education, a green card, and the ability to vote in American elections. Emma Waters, research associate at the Heritage Foundation's Richard and Helen DeVos Center, has been heading up this research, and she joins me now to explain more. Emma, thanks so much for joining me in studio today. Thanks for having me on, Prudence. So lay it out for me. Walk us through exactly how this commercial surrogacy program is being carried out.
4: Yes, yeah, so it all started back in the day with birth tourism, where women, oftentimes from East Asian countries, would come over in the eighth month of pregnancy with the hopes of burying their child here in the United States. Because with birth right citizenship if you're born here you get all the benefits of being a citizen even if you don't grow up here and you're not actually American by any meaningful means right so with the development of assisted reproductive technologies like IVF that allows you to create an embryo right with the sperm and the egg in a lab and then with other processes that allow commercial surrogacy where you then implant that embryo into a third woman's body for the hope in hopes that it will like turn into a viable pregnancy as this has developed we've seen an expansion not just in our nation, but also um, within—across the globe, really. So, all of a sudden, for the first time, parents in China can send over their sperm, their egg or an embryo, have it implanted in in the womb of a woman in the United States, and then she can conceive and bear a child, all without the child's biological parents ever leaving China.
0: It's unbelievable. And when you take a minute to think about it, it really is so alarming. And Emma, this is happening in California now, but are other states opening up the door to this? Is there anyone opposing it? What do you think this is? How will this play out? Yeah,
4: it's a great question. So when it comes to commercial surrogacy and even most of our IVF laws, there are very few federal regulations governing it. And most of the time, they're only addressing very top level concerns like consumer contracts, Mm -hmm. not the actual ethical um, processes that take place place. So, every state effectively decides for itself what its surrogacy laws will be, what its IVF laws will be. So you have states like New York, that's another major hub for international surrogacy agreements Mm. from China, um, from other East Asian nations, some from France. And then you also have Illinois, who's been one of the top players in this game, including their including their redefinition of infertility to include one sexual preference so a gay couple can be infertile simply because they can't conceive children or a single person can be infertile because they have no partner to produce with hmm. um so we're seeing a lot of moves on the state level to address this
0: mm, very interesting and Can you talk about how surrogacy harms women and children? You know, what the effects can be of a child being born via a surrogate as opposed to being born of their
4: biological mother? Yeah, this is a massive question. And this is where the distinction between we don't have studies that show the harms of this must be made. Mm. Because what happens is with informed consent, people think, oh, there are no studies showing negative outcomes for the surrogate, for the family, or for the child. Therefore, this must be a good thing, right? When in reality, we just just don't have enough studies to actually tell us, one way or the other, the impact. We do know that children who are conceived via IVF are going to have much higher levels of autism, of Down syndrome, Mm. and of other, like, minor um, abnormalities when they're born. Um, And this is, like, CDC reporting. And then, when it comes to commercial surrogacy, we know these pregnancies are far more high risk and that the impact it has on a child, taking them away from the only body that they've known, and stripping them of that intimate connection to go to the hands of what may be their biological parents, but aren't necessarily biologically related, but, like, strangers to the child, right? Like this has massive impacts on their emotional cognitive development. Mm. And we've barely done the studies to actually see if this is good for the children we're creating.
0: Right. And we have about 30 seconds left. Are there any other details or important things that you'd like to add about all of this? Yeah.
4: In the midst of China using the wombs of American citizens, we also have um, Congress members introducing bills like the Right to Build Families Act of 2022 Mm. that would prohibit any limitations to IVF or commercial surrogacy laws in the United States, except for those governed by like, top-level health and safety regulations, which means all of the moral and ethical concerns that we've outlined in this interview mm. would effectively be overruled by this congressional bill.
0: Mm. Very interesting. Well, thank you for shedding a light on all of this, Emma Waters of the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me on.
0: Coming up, the FDA attempts to redefine when life begins via label changes on dangerous drugs. I speak out. Plus, coffee lovers, listen up. The owner of an up-and-coming pro-life coffee business joins us to discuss how his company donates to pro-life pregnancy centers across the nation next. Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. The FDA is attempting to change the definition of when life begins and undermining the extreme danger of abortifacient drugs like Plan B. That is this week's Speak Out segment. The word on the street is that the FDA is changing the labels on Plan B drugs to say that they cannot be used as abortion drugs. But what many are ignoring is that by doing this, they are defying the scientific facts about when life begins. Let's set the record straight. Plan B can, in fact, be used as an abortifacient drug, and here's how it works. After a woman's egg has been fertilized by a man's sperm, the woman can take Plan B to stop the fertilized egg a new life, from implanting in the mother's womb so that it can grow. This is an abortion. But the FDA is choosing to emphasize the fact that Plan B can also stop the release of an egg from the ovary before fertilization. The truth is, Plan B completely destroys a woman's hormones and makes her womb inhospitable for conceiving a child. It can be used as both contraception and for an abortion. Plan B can also damage a woman's future fertility, upsetting the natural rhythm of her hormones and making it hard for her to conceive children throughout her lifespan by stopping her reproductive functions. The FDA's recent moves are deceptive and evil. It's wrong to confuse the public about when life begins and diminish what Plan B does. It can be devastating to a woman's reproductive health and well-being. Our next guest is someone that every pro-life coffee addict should know about, the owner of a fairly new company called Seven Weeks Coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee has been around for about a year now, and its founder refers to himself as a, quote, believer in the marketplace. Ten percent of all proceeds made at the company are donated to local pregnancy care centers, giving a greater purpose to your morning cup of joe. Joining me now is Anton Kressek, founder of Seven Weeks Coffee. Anton, thanks so much for joining me.
5: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I understand that initially you wanted to work in the political sphere. Now you're running a very successful coffee business. So talk to me about how that transition happened.
5: Yeah, so I moved down to D.C. almost three years ago uh, with the passion just to get involved in the political process. Um, I learned a lot. I worked in political fundraising before this. But I actually always had um, a very big heart for the pro-life movement. Um, I was able to visit a pregnancy care center years ago and that really stuck with me and um, led to the start of seven weeks coffee actually
0: uh, that's so wonderful and talk to me a little bit about the name seven yeah. weeks coffee I-, I love the inspiration for it so share it with mm-hmm, our guests.
5: sure so when I had the idea for a pro-life coffee company I wanted to try to find a way to tie it in to the meaning and the purpose behind it so after doing some research and I talked to my wife who's a nurse um, she kind of like asked me when's a baby the size of a coffee bean so I looked it up. At seven weeks, a baby is the size of a coffee bean. And at the same time, a heartbeat's clearly detectable under ultrasound. So I was like, that is the name. That's what we're going to call the company.
0: I love it. When I heard that, I was like, this is the cutest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Best company ever. <laughs> How has your first year been? Any any challenges, anything that surprised you about running a business, specifically with you know a pro-life
5: mission? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was truly eye-opening. Um, God has blessed us more than we ever could have imagined. Um, There really was no pro-life coffee company around uh, that I really saw making a kind of a national impact and stage. I was like, there's a mission here and there's an impact that we can can have. And the whole idea was to have a tangible impact supporting life-saving services at pregnancy care centers. So that's how we tied in to donate 10% of every sale. We wanted to raise money for centers. Mm. And, of course, the year we get started is the year that Roe v. Wade is overturned. So it's very crucial timing. We were able to direct a large portion of our sales to centers in need with over 100 centers already attacked just in, you know, after Roe v. Wade was mm. overturned, it's really important that we're able to stand up for them. So, yeah. um, perfect timing, actually. Yeah, it's
0: a great point. Very relevant time mm-hmm. to be starting a business like this. And, you know, talk to me just a little bit before I let you go about the quality of your coffee and, and where people can buy it.
5: Yeah, so the quality is a very important part. We source our coffee direct trade, which means we're directly supporting local farmers, and we have a high-quality um, coffee bean from Ethiopia, which are organically farmed, um, no pesticides, no mold. So you can buy there. You can also shop your values. So it's all found at sevenweekscoffee.com. And in our first year of prudence, we raised over $50,000 for centers. So that was our big announcement. We surpassed our goal. Over 250 centers supported. So great coffee and a great mission. We hope anyone who drinks coffee would join us.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. We'll all certainly be drinking a cup of Seven Weeks coffee. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anton, for joining us. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. You can also send us a message by emailing pro at EWTN.com. we love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.